Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers. Hailed as the punk ballerina by Vanity Fair, legendary dancer and choreographer Carol Armitage is no stranger to pushing boundaries. As the artistic director of the New York-based Armitage Gone Dance Company, Armitage has enjoyed an illustrious career redefining dance and sending shockwaves through contemporary culture. After rigorous foundational training in classical ballet, Armitage began her professional career as a member of Balanchine's ballet company in Geneva. Soon thereafter, she started exploring modern dance when she joined Merce Cunningham's company performing leading roles in his landmark works. But Armitage envisioned a new future for dance with an aim to test the imagination, break through barriers, and shake up the status quo. In the mid-80s, she established her first dance company in New York City, the Armitage Ballet. As both dancer and choreographer, Armitage began combining classical, modern, and street influences with a bit of punk, rock and roll, and rap mixed in. She quickly became notorious for her radical and avant-garde work. In spite of being seen as the black sheep for betraying all traditions, her work continued to evolve and electrify audiences worldwide. Armitage directed and choreographed groundbreaking ballets across the globe. For several years, she served as director of Maggio Danza, the ballet of Florence, Italy. Armitage also choreographed two Broadway productions, Passing Strange and Hair, which earned her a Tony nomination. And she famously choreographed Madonna's Vogue tour. And since the pandemic, Armitage has been delving into film and video as a new way to reinvent how dance is experienced and bring her art form to a wider audience. And like everything else she does, there is no medium that Carol can't conquer. We welcome Carol Armitage to Art Laws. In the mid 80s, you became known as the punk ballerina, which was the first time I saw you dance in 1988 at your show, Go Go Ballerina. You were dancing to Jimi Hendrix and I'd never seen anything like it. It was like powerful, irreverent, sexy, wild, and yet it was ballet. And I had studied dance growing up and ballet and modern dance in college with some of the founders like Hanya Holm, Don Redlick, Murray Lewis. So I'd seen a lot of dance, but when I saw you dance to Hendrix in this little club in the East Village called The World, I was blown away. And I was blown away by your dynamism and your boldness and your energy, and it opened my eyes to what was possible with dance. So I think you said as an artist, you like to break out of boxes. And I think Go Go Ballerina is a key example of this. And I think you even literally had dancers busting out of a cake, if I remember correctly, designed it by artist Jeff Koons. So before we go back to your earlier roots in dance, tell us about that show, your days as a punk ballerina and your interest in breaking out of boxes as an artist. Well, I still feel that I'm the punk ballerina, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I I love the word because it combines, you know, kind of both the raw, wild counterculture side and then also the sense of history and poetry that comes from ballet. So I embrace it wholeheartedly. <laughs> so the go-go ballerina was 
really an event. I mean, I didn't think about it that way, but I didn't want to perform in a conventional space. And in New York in the mid 80s, it was still pretty wild, especially over there in Alphabet City. And there were all these clubs. So we went to the world, which I rented for a few days in order to do this. And that was the kind of thing that no one was doing in dance, like going to alternative spaces. So just on that level alone, it was quite revolutionary and it got people very excited. Plus it was a very dangerous neighborhood. So, you know, there was a free song of even going there. <laughs> and in fact, there was someone murdered there in one of the rooms right next to where we were <laughs> performing, which I didn't know, you know, as it happened, but I found out a couple of days later. But the idea was that this was a kind of beautiful but decaying space so that just the room itself had so much atmosphere. And I wanted to do something that was combining art and dance and music in ways that people weren't doing. So yes, there it was, Jimi Hendrix. And it was also some very early rap. So all of these this was in, yeah, I guess it was in 1988. So it wasn't it was something public that people, enemy, right? There was some public enemy and one other, and the name is escaping me right now. Maybe it'll come to me, but it was, was both. Schooly D. I think it was Schooly. Yes, it was Schooly yes. D. So there was uh, also an interesting fact was that the costumes were designed by both artist David Sally and sculptor Jeff Coombs. Hmm. And so there were those two artists involved as well as me and my company, plus a few extra dancers. And things are kind of just bursting unexpectedly from different parts of the room. And so you never quite knew what was going to happen next. Yeah. Um, and that was the yeah. excitement. I mean, it was just, you, it was completely unexpected and exciting and energizing. Yeah, well, and of course you have that extraordinary music, which is just yeah. so full of, you know, as you said, it's sexy, it's, it's hard, hard at the same time, it's just full of electricity. I mean, it was, it was an event, and it was taking ballet, basically, into the sensibility of rock, that kind of freedom, that kind of hard driving, hard rock sort of dance style actually embracing sexuality, which was especially a woman's eroticism, which was completely forbidden at the New York dance world of that era. You know, it was very moralistic. It was all about minimalism. You were supposed to have essentially kind of no meaning of any kind, no theatricality, no content, no music, no story, no you know, it was a lot of no's. And I had really decided I wanted to say yes. And I wanted to really address the culture around me and to bring in things like costume and music and eroticism and rock and still deeply, deeply rooted in the history, the, the way of using the body because the technology of the body that ballet figured out is just unrivaled. I mean, it's the most brilliant understanding of the technology, the body, how the joints and muscles work. So it gives you freedom. You can do what you want because you've trained like that. And therefore you can explode in whatever way your imagination goes for. Mm -hmm. Right. 
I think it's interesting because here you are breaking these boundaries, but in the early 70s, you were in Geneva and you were dancing under Balachine. And I mean, to me, that was classical ballet and probably very, very rigorous. And I just, it's interesting that in order to break the rules, you had to learn the rules. So I'm just sort of interested in that experience as a young dancer starting out under Balachine, what that was like and if you felt hindered by that in any way. Well, I'd trained in basically Balanchine technique always. My first teacher had been in his company, and then I went to his school in New York in the summers, and then I was at North Carolina School of the Arts for junior high and high school. That was also Balanchine training. So it was, and it Mm. is the most athletic, precise training. So therefore, it is the way to understand the technology of the body. Right. And I absolutely loved doing what we call the leotard ballets. Those are the very contemporary, existential, complex kind of psychological ballets with basically very body revealing. I mean, you just wore a leotard. Mm. There were no fancy costumes and there was no decorative music. I mean, it was very austere, but just full of power because the innovation of how to move and the subject matter was just so radical. He's a really radical artist, Balanchine. So I love doing that. But then he comes from the Russian imperial tradition. So there were also a lot of tutu ballets or more demure sense of femininity. And I just felt like an imposter in those. It made no sense to me. I just didn't know enough about history to even understand the roots of this kind of courtly ballet style. So that ultimately pushed me into leaving ballet and going into modern dance. I had never even seen modern dance. I really didn't know what it was. But I had a friend who was Swiss who told me, oh, you should check out Merce Cunningham. And I I went went to the Merce Cunningham studio with a bun because, you know, I had ballet bun. And uh, (laughs) took a class and went, oh yeah, this is great because it still uses all of those skills that were necessary in that took so much effort to learn about how to write with the body because that's really what you're doing. So Mm -hmm. you can do what you want to use the body in extreme ways. So that encouraged me to cut my hair off and And become a modern dancer. And I was very lucky because Cunningham asked me shortly thereafter if I would be interested in joining the company. And that was fascinating because I got to learn to think about movement in a new way. The use of weight is different. And then there were kind of lots of different positions in the upper body and the torso. So that was intellectually very stimulating, which is great because so much of dance is just about the physical, demonically difficult physical attributes. Right. Were you embraced by this modern world or was there sort of a bias between coming from the classical world? That is the trillion dollar question. There was was nothing but hate between ballet and modern dance. I mean, it was so extreme that when I was at North Carolina School of the Arts as a junior high, high school student, There was a small modern dance department with modern dance lessons and and dancers who were enrolled in that. We were not even allowed to go see that as a ballet student. So it was a sense of a different class, a different 
spiritual idea different. Every single thing were these kind of diametrically opposed philosophical outlets. So they were profound enemies. So there I was, a ballet dancer, and then I was a modern dancer. And then I started my own work and put the two together along with street influences and rock and rolls and punk spirit. So I betrayed ballet. I betrayed modern. I mean, I was like the person who was just disliked by everyone who had (laughs) vested interest in maintaining the status quo. So you moved from Geneva back to New York, it sounds like. That's right. And that was where you started the Armitage Ballet. So what was your vision for the Armitage Ballet in those early days? Well, I was, yes, I was a ballet dancer until I was 20. And then I joined Cunningham for five years. And during that time, I started, punk was happening in New York. It was the late 70s. And I started doing choreography and and was doing these pretty wild, youthful, jubilation of destruction kind of ballets, dances. And then I just got more and more interested in what is ballet. And I started the, yes, the Armitage Ballet. And it was trying to look at what does ballet look like? What does it feel like? What questions can it address? What is the subject matter of contemporary ballet? So that was its purpose. And what way can it be a collaborative art form that brings in contemporary music, contemporary art, poetry, whatever, but all things that are of our day to day? And I had a lot to learn because ballet has very, very strict rules in how you move. And to try to find new ways is not easy. So, you know, going really off balance, adding very harsh accents rather than pretty and lyrical, much more extreme kind of movement that is not sort of proper in some way, particularly in how a woman presents herself. All of these were kind of the physical attributes that were going on. And then in something like Go-Go Ballerina, it was, of course, addressing all of these things through rock and rap. Right. It's interesting because after the five years with Merce Cunningham and you forming this kind of hybrid of the two, that interests me. I'm just curious what that was all about. Would you say you combined modern and ballet? Yes, yes. The language. The language. Yeah, definitely the language, because dance is a language. And to learn a new language, just like learning, to say, to speak French, you know, it takes several years. I mean, it's not something you can just move from ballet to modern and just do it immediately. I mean, it takes a lot of learning about how you use your weight and the designs, how you think of the geometry. You're always thinking about geometry in your mind in order to, to make the shapes flow. So you, you have to learn a lot. But my interest was to use, essentially was the intellectual ideas of modern dance about rethinking time and space. Because ballet is essentially very symmetrical. It tells you where to focus. There's a lead dancer. So you might say it's quite, in this way, it's very narrative. It tells you what is most important visually, and that becomes emotional. Whereas Cunningham, the great innovation he made was to look at the stage as a field 
and things can be happening all over the stage and you decide where you want to watch and there is no hierarchy. It's much more democratic or much more like, you know, the physics has opened up our ways of seeing how the world operates. It's not hierarchical that way. So that was the great innovation. So I wanted to use those ideas of adding new kinds of movement, adding a different way of thinking about space and time from modern dance, but I wanted all of the poetry, the refinement, the extreme ability of controlling the body technically from ballet. So it was really combining the two because, again, modern dance was anti-emotion, anti-psychology, anti-meaning. And I was really interested in bringing those aspects into contemporary dance. When, Very when cool. you were doing these commissions at the Paris Opera Ballet and you were just starting to really shake things up, what was the response? I assume Paris Opera Ballet was very traditional. And now here you were choreographing these pieces. I'm just curious what sort of the international response was to your work at this time. Oh, the international response was fantastic. Great. Fantastically positive. The negative was all American. Really? Because, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> because their institutions, Paris Opera Ballet is Louis XIV essentially founded it. It's 400 years old. They're very secure. And what they love, particularly the French, they are so excited by innovation. They have no fear that the tradition is going to disappear. So what they're most excited about is really people coming in and rethinking what the art form can be. So I was given carte blanche. I was given, I could invite anyone I wanted to. I could have up to 100 dancers. It was just kind of the most ideal working conditions. And yes, they are very traditional. So did they know how to move in this new way? No. And could they learn that in two months? No. Hmm. So I had to kind of take into consideration their history, what they know how to do and how they know how to think and try to turn the dial somewhat. But it's only with your own company where you create a philosophy and a culture together that you can really push things to the extreme. It's interesting to me because here you were sort of on your own for the first time coming from these very different traditions. Were you confident in what you were trying to do or were you still filling things out? I was overly confident. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the reason I became a choreographer is I had a feeling for something that no one was doing. And I just decided to fill in the gap. And that was exactly this thing, combining ballet, modern, and street influences. And people responded essentially incredibly positively. I mean, of course, there were, you know, the people thought I was the black sheep for betraying all the traditions. Those aside, it was met with great enthusiasm. And it simply took off on its own. You know, and then I was just being invited to tour these pieces and to do dances at different institutions. There was no career thought mm. behind it. And I was confident because art is always about turning the dial a little bit and borrowing from many different influences and kind of just looking at it from a different perspective. So it just seemed like it's what an artist does. You definitely want to make the status quo look at itself. You want 
the questions to be asked and you want to give a kind of new thrill because there is a different perspective being offered. Right. I mean, is there a power in being the outsider? Oh, I think so. I think there's no question. Did you feel like the outsider? I mean, maybe you still feel like the outsider. I don't know. Oh, I absolutely feel like the outsider. (laughs) (laughs) I've had incredible opportunities, but there's absolutely no question that I still ruffle feathers in the American dance world because it's, I'm just not, first of all, what I'm doing is not really shared with other choreographers, which is a very difficult position to be in because you kind of need to be part of a movement. But this thing of having been a ballet dancer and a modern dancer and having done both, you know, the very highest level with probably the two greatest choreographers of the 20th century. Right. You and know, you were really central yeah. to Merce Cunningham. I mean, you played a central role in... Very, very central. Yeah. And part of the loneliness of this is that, you know, like who else has that experience? Well, there is one other person and that is William Forsythe because he made his career entirely in Europe because Europe supports innovation so much more. And here I've been given way less money than the people who are doing the pseudo Cunningham or the pseudo Trisha Brown or this, you know, when it's kind of second generation and it's safe and people know what it is, you get a lot more money because <laughs> the grants are committees. The committee has to, all the people have to decide and anyone who's radical and ruffling feathers, it's a lot harder to get a consensus. So you pay a price for being the outsider in terms of support on that level, but you get, well, what I think is the more important point is you, you know, you're actually, you're doing what you believe and standing up for it. And that, that's what the political act, I mean, in and of itself of great importance that you just, that you absolutely take charge of your own person in the world and, and live up to those beliefs that you have. Yeah. And it's really inspiring and freeing, I think, probably for other artists to see. I think so. I think so. And I think, you know, for me, freedom sounds terribly self-indulgent. I'm sure it is in some way, but I always felt like I wanted to be free. I didn't want to be branded as doing any one kind of thing as, as an artist. And so I've done, I've had various different phases from the real pure punk to then kind of the the picture making with the collaborations with David Sally and Philip Taff and Jeff Koons, which was really very much involved with visual art. Then I lived in Italy for years and became very influenced by Italian thought and, and I would say had kind of the poetic years. I always thought it was great to change, not get stuck in a rut. Right. So there's a through line, which is really this continued idea of pushing the boundaries of what dance looks like and what subject matter it can address. Mm -hmm. And definitely combining the street ballet and modern ideas, both intellectual and sensual, and that they're equally important. So all of that remains the through line, but there are different phases of how that looks and feels. Well, let's talk about the mid-80s, and you were in a relationship with David Sally. 
living together in a loft in Tribeca where you had artists and dancers flowing in and out. And the two of you were this dynamic artist duo collaborating on many projects. One of them was a ballet called Contempt in 1989. And Contempt was to be held in the former Studio 54. Yeah. <laughs> and David and Jeff Koons designed the sets and David also the costumes. And somehow I ended up in that ballet in two films that David was creating as backdrops. And, and, and one of the films was this frenetic dance that you choreographed in David's studio in your loft with me costumed in mm -hmm. black and white jester skirt. I think David had designed and, and I danced in front of one of David's paintings. Another, I was sitting on your bed, leafing through a book with a supermodel. So I'm just wanting to paint the picture for people who didn't know about this time. And it was such a prolific time for you. Jeff Koons was there at the time as he was planning to design these giant pigs and dolls that <laughs> floated through your ballet. So tell us about that time and contempt, its inception, those years in collaboration. What was it like for you? Oh, where to begin? Well, <laughs> well, it was a kaleidoscope of influences of all the many things that we loved, which was ideas from cinema, from furniture design, from 50s hipster poetry, of course, painting, theater. It was a kind of kaleidoscope of influences that had to be tamed <laughs> in a different way for each piece. But it was certainly with the idea that one could look at a complex array of juxtapositions and that these juxtapositions could really ignite new sensations and kind of meaningful content. Not that it all had to mean anything. Sometimes it was just like pure sensual thrill, visual and of the bodies, movement, the erotic energy, but just paying attention to the fact that the world is so much dominated by images as a fast sign language for talking about what is going on culturally was a, the kind of a primary interest in those years. Mm -hmm. So somebody like Jeff Koons, what the artist did essentially was they had their own vocabularies that they were exploring with all the kind of metaphoric power within them or just the visual dazzle. Mm -hmm. So they were kind of using elements of those and bringing them to the stage. And then, of course, you had this foreground and background and so that there was this kind of constant dialogue of motion with stillness. And even though the backgrounds were often changing a lot, but they were, well, they were still, except there you were in movies, so they weren't always still, were they? <laughs> um, but it, anyway, it was just dealing with the proliferation of image and everything from high, there was no boundaries between high culture, low culture, just as for me, punk is as important as ballet. Right, you know, it really integrated yeah. things. And it was interesting because I think Teresa Russell was reading Brett Easton Ellis yes. throughout and it was just, again, something I hadn't seen before. And no one in dance that I'd seen was doing anything like that. So it was just beyond imagination. 
yeah, it was, you know, it was just a marvelous playground. It's the idea of unleashing the imagination and having a great time while imposing discipline <laughs> so that it's something that other people can look at and understand. I mean, you want to communicate so much of it is really about, it's all about sharing. So, yeah. Yeah. What was New York? I mean, I, I just think of New York in the 80s, early 90s as just being this crazy time socially, politically, artistically, and you were in the center of it. I'm just curious, what was that like just being there at that moment? And what were you drawing inspiration from? Well, it's interesting. You know, the 70s, of course, the city was bankrupt and it was, everything was incredibly cheap. I mean, my apartment was $85 a month. Going to the the theater was $2. I mean, that was like a typical price. So you didn't really need money. And that was very helpful to the creative process. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you just need a tiny bit of money you could get by. And that's changed a lot, unfortunately. Oh, my God, has it ever. The other thing about the 70s that's interesting is dance was important. Music was important. Art, not so much. It was somehow not where the action was, at least from, I think, just as a cultural energy. It wasn't really where people were focused. Mm -hmm. Then the 80s hit, and all of a sudden, the art world took off. And that completely changed New York culture because these artists suddenly, like well, David Sally being one, their work suddenly was incredibly valuable and very wealthy people were buying these paintings. So there was, suddenly there was a big, big dichotomy between people in the performing arts and people in the visual arts. Performing arts remained very poor and the visual artists were getting really wealthy, but very generous. And I mean, I've survived as a dance company completely due to the generosity of artists who would donate their work once this started happening and and it became valuable. They would give me a piece, I would sell it, and that's how we would pay the dancers. It's always been through the generosity of artists. That's so interesting. Yeah, people don't know. You perform at something like Brooklyn Academy of Music. They barely pay you. Almost everything that they program is underwritten by foreign governments because the institution costs a lot to run and really all of their fundraising kind of pays for their internal staff and and maintenance. And there's very little left for the artist. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is just the reality of how it works in New York. And dance was really the most underfunded art, correct? Is that? Well, it's gotten worse. (laughs) It's gotten worse, believe it or not. It's a very expensive art form because there's nothing that you can do to make it a fast process because it is in the dance studio with people working that you actually create the art. There is no written form. You can't write it down so that people can read a score like music. So it's very labor intensive and in that way, incredibly old fashioned. So yes, so it's expensive. It's an expensive, expensive art form, and it has absolutely no ability to earn money. So you have have a problem in a a mega capitalist society. (laughs) Yeah, in Europe, of course, again, the reason that it's so, that they 
embrace innovation so much is because all the theaters and the dance companies, you know, opera companies, they're all state funded. So that's changed a little bit in the last 10 years, but essentially the government pays all the expenses. And here, you know, you spend so much of your time you know, chasing grants and, and they're piddling amounts. And anyway, it's a completely dysfunctional system. And, you know, and people have even given up pretty much having dance companies now. It is just too expensive. So people kind of do these pickup projects and then the quality goes down and then the audience starts dropping off. So dance has been in a very difficult situation in the U.S. Let me go back to this idea of the outsider, because around the same time this was all happening, you were involved with the Harlem ballroom culture as a judge. Oh, yeah. And to me, that's like, that is the most insular subculture in New York. And it was like, how Hmm. did you, first of all, how did you get invited? And what was that like being an outsider once again in this world? Well, it's one of the most thrilling things I've ever done. That's for sure. I was in this kind of, again, marginalized downtown hipster world. I was a star at that time because I was the punk ballerina and I was doing all of this work that was getting a lot of attention and audiences were really coming. It was a hot thing. And the Vogers, these Harlem Vogers knew who I was. And I don't know who exactly or how they found me. I, I don't remember, but I got invited to be a judge. And I didn't know what voguing was this was when was this this was 81 or two something like that oh was that early i didn't yes this was very early early. yeah wow okay i didn't go i don't know how many balls there were it was it really was incredibly underground as you said but there would be these big competitions and they would go to something like the rose ballroom which is a very famous venue near times square Anyway, they would get these different spaces and have these extraordinary contests. And they would all have a category like best eyewear. And then whoever was in that competition would sashay down the runway showing off their eyewear while doing this extraordinary athletic dancing. And it's a remarkable art form. But there was no money. I mean, they're just going back to what you were talking about with dance. I mean, with this, there was really no money in that. I'm just curious how yeah. they were able to create these balls with so little resources. Mm. And if that inspired oh. you. I did not think about the money. That's a great question. Where on earth do they get the money? I have no idea. I know that most of the voguers, the kids who were going down the runway, I know that they stole almost all of the clothing and, you know, that they, oh yeah, that was famous. The clothing, the accessories, they didn't have the money to buy it. So I know that. But they would run out these spaces like the Rose. Somehow they, yeah. How on earth did they do that? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe somehow. No idea. Yeah. 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 It makes sense, though, that they would invite you into this world because it seems like you were kind of a kindred spirit in a way. Yes, yes. I think absolute kindred spirit. And then, of course, I became really good friends, particularly with Willie Ninja, who sadly has died due to AIDS. But he was a very important person and one of the all-time greats. 
very much featured in Paris is Burning, for example. And he and I became fast, fast friends. And I invited him to many, many different places where I was working to give workshops. So I invited him to France, Italy, to Greece with my company. And so we did a lot of projects together. And then I had kind of his, he had a house of ninja. Members of his house performed with my company. And for example, at the Joyce Theater in 90, something like 1990. And he brought his mother, you know, so it was like kind of family experience. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. And subsequently, when he died, I sort of lost touch because he, he was really my ambassador to the voguing world. And it's changed so much like everything. Well, voguing became part of the mainstream culture, and then you ended up choreographing Madonna's Vogue tour. So what was that like, working with Madonna? That's a big change going from calling all the shots <laughs> in your own dance company to working with a pop singer on tour who was probably used to calling her own shots. You, you nailed it on the head. I was not really ready to be subservient. <laughs> I mean, I just didn't understand. I was there really sort of to service the star image. That's why once I was hired to choreograph Vogue, which of course was a collaboration with two of New York's greatest Voguers. So I was kind of an arranger as much as anything because these guys were just geniuses. And Madonna knew that I was, she came to see all of my pieces for many years. And she kept saying, we should work together. We should work together. And when she discovered voguing in her extraordinarily prescient way. She knew exactly when it was time to bring voguing to the mainstream. I mean, that I think is her artistry is knowing the timing to make something popular mm -hmm. so that it still seems edgy. But, you know, if you're of that culture, it's already been around for 10 years, you know, I mean, but she has an uncanny sense of how to bring things to the mainstream at the right time. So when she decided to do a voguing piece, then she said, this is the perfect project for us because it's very, you know, voguing is very balletic, which is absolutely true. I mean, it uses the body very much like ballet. It's kind of like, they're kind of two ghetto forms. One is the elitist ghetto and one is the, you know, the, the underclass ghetto, but the thinking is identical and using the body at its most extreme and using rhythm and musicality to be exciting and expressive. And of course the Vogers, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, the concept is absolutely the same. With the concept, what's the relationship to fashion and runway shows in terms of oh. that? I'm curious about that link. When I first started as a judge, the relationship was one of these very marginalized, very poor, they were either Latino or Black men who were gay. So they had every single difficulty in American society. You know, their sexuality, their economic status. So they invented voguing as a kind of, I think, as a kind of almost psychological healing ritual, is that they would pretend that they had these glamorous clothes and that they were these superstars and they did these kind of battles 
which instead of killing each other in the streets, which of course was going on so much in the 70s and 80s, there was so much violence in New York, Mm -hmm. gang violence in particular, drug violence. They deflected it and they used dance as a battlefield. It's just like so ethnologically, you might say, brilliant. And because it gave them this way of being all that they desired and all that was absolutely excluded from their racial, sexual, economic background. I think it's absolutely incredible. And what I think is also really interesting is I've spent a fair amount of time studying African culture and going to Africa Mm -hmm. because I had a really important boyfriend who was from the Cameroon. So I spent quite a bit of time there. And I realized that, in fact, Roosh, do you know Roosh, uh, who made a lot of films in Africa about kind of traditions, and he kind of helped invent the French New Wave Mm -hmm. because he had to do handheld cameras. Anyway, he filmed these, again, the very disenfranchised, poor African class who were so subjugated by the colonial white powers in these various countries, he, he showed how they had these rituals to, uh, to just get over the pain. And they would do these kind of physical dance. But they had the help of drugs as well to sort of cleanse, the psychological cleansing, to just be able to go back and accept this very, very painful status. And so I feel like this is kind of an African tradition, mm-hmm. perhaps, that, that migrated somehow into the Harlem gay community and turned into voting. It's interesting now because we see with Brian Murphy's pose where this moment has sort of come back in a very commercial way. But at the time when Madonna was doing this, was there any animosity from the, from the ball community because they're, oh, they're, yes. it was co-opted? Yeah. No, here's what happened. There was no one in fashion interested in them. There was no one interested in them at all in mainstream culture. No one in mainstream culture even knew it existed. Madonna, through Debbie Mazur, who is a real New Yorker and you know, was, has been a great actress, she and good friend to Madonna told Madonna about voguing. Madonna decided to bring it to the mainstream. Then the voguers, at first, everyone was thrilled because, you know, it was their chance to get known. Then there was after the whole tour, the Blonde Ambition tour, and they started feeling exploited. There was lawsuits brought against her. Then the fashion world is discovering them, and they you know, became very beloved by the world of fashion who brought them in as models. And so that was, that was where... I think it really is through Madonna that they entered into a mainstream and were able to earn some money. But there was definitely, because I was working through that time, there was such a respect for art. So they were so thrilled that I would invite them into an art context because they wanted to be known for the greatness of their dance, not as some kind of like fly-by-night newest sensation. Right, Because they are doing great art. You know, it's really a great art form. And they weren't recognized as artists. They were recognized as kind of this novelty. In 1996, after the Vogue tour, you became fascinated with the power and corruption of Wall Street, the arbitragers, inside traders, Mike Milken, Ivan Bosky. What drew you to these characters that led to Predator's Ball? 
that's such a great question because it goes back to how New York changed in the 80s when all of a sudden the art world people got rich. And so given that I was living with David Sally, I was often invited to these arbitragers houses because they're renegade thinkers about Wall right. Street. And so they were drawn to the renegade art and they bought these things. So I was like, who are these people and how can they be so, in a way, so cold-blooded buying a company, destroying it, throwing people's jobs into the wastebasket? It was, it was just something that I, I just, I, I was kind of seeing it up close. And at the same time, I had, couldn't penetrate how they were thinking. They could live with themselves morally. Mm -hmm. So I did a first iteration, actually, was it? I think it was, I did the first iteration in Paris with black rappers who were kind of like the Greek chorus. They were, well, African Parisian rappers (laughs) and had a, a wonderful drag queen, Richard Move, who was kind of the narrator. And it was all about this kind of lust for money and a kind of hedonism, you know, in that money-making environment. It was just through my personal experience and then reading about Michael Milken, who only needed to sleep three hours a night. And he would literally take calls that were 15 seconds long and make million-dollar decisions based on that. So I was just, if anything, it's only gotten worse. I was just fascinated by the inhumanity, the lack of humanity and the drivenness to make money that was completely changing the American cultural values. You just saw it with the election of Reagan, how New York changed and all of a sudden the city is starting to get expensive. And of course, it's across the whole country, but I was just living it very viscerally, Mm. how these political and economic changes were affecting my daily life. And I was seeing it from both sides because I was in dance. So I was, you know, with the really marginalized. And then I was going out at night to these fancy events where these people were running Wall Street. So, yeah, so I I just had to ask. (laughs) That's so interesting. And this became a very theatrical piece that you ultimately toured through Europe. And yes, And it's just interesting, your casting choices, because I recall you casting non-dancers who had a theatrical presence and wanted you to talk about that. Yes, the Predators Ball, they had the kind of the rap Greek chorus, the transvestite uh, drag queen narrator. And then I cast actors as various characters, Ivan Boski and Michael Milken. And these were actors who were incredibly good at movement also. Because, of course, I always think of, I'm not, not interested really in seeing people stand around and talk. They have to move <laughs> while they talk. <laughs> and then the dancers were kind of the energy field of, you know, how the, the, the effects of these things. They were like the constellation. They were culture. They were culture, you might say. Just they were the people, you know, being affected. So I've always been incredibly interested in... Yes, working with a wide variety of kinds of people. Very early pieces, I had a young actress named Natalie Richard, French, who actually went on to work with Jacques Rivette with many people. She moved really well, and she's very smart, but she wasn't a trained dancer. So it was just interesting to have 
kind of an untrained person mm-hmm. bringing that flavor into the very trained arena as well. Because all of these forms, again, if conceptualized in an interesting way, can bring additional flavors that just create complexity rather than, you know, I'm just very interested in contradictions and complexity as opposed to some kind of straightforward meaning. Right. I think that's a theme that runs throughout all of your work. Wouldn't yes. You say? Yeah. I would absolutely agree. And you know what, because what is, interests me is really is a dialogue. It's kind of, there's something on stage that's happening, but it's about the audience imagination joining. So it's like minds are joining and it's really the audience individual members who are reading into what they're seeing that makes it completes what the meaning is. I mean, it's talking talk about interactive. It's totally interactive because mm-hmm. I am never telling anyone what to think or feel, but offering a kind of experience that you look at this activity and you see in some way aspects of yourself. It's a meditative joining of minds. What's interesting too is as you know, you were talking about New York changing and at that time, around that time, you became director of the Florence Ballet. So I'm just kind of curious what sort of brought you to Florence in terms of, you know, what, what was the company like and how did you transform it under your direction? I was invited because the ballet director had resigned and I had done a piece there and I was this person just at the right age. What was I, 40, 45, you know, when you have enough maturity to run things, but you still have a lot of energy (laughs) to run things. (laughs) So this is an opera house in Italy. So that's a very conservative place in many ways in terms of their understanding of tradition, but they wanted to shake things up. And there I was an American woman. So there were people who really wanted to help me and there were people who absolutely wanted to destroy me. Hmm. I mean, there were concerted efforts to destroy me of secret meetings with the press, printing false information, famous ballerinas who really wanted the job who were Italian, spreading rumors, the unions deciding to rise up against me because unions very much dominate Italian art cultural institutions, dancers saying, oh, my grandmother has a headache. I can't perform tonight. I mean, there was just every possible imaginative act being done to sort of undermine me. But I was just so determined to do things that ultimately, you know, I was bringing in, I brought in Gautier to do costumes. I brought in James Ivory to direct, to create costumes and sets. Some of the hippest young choreographers. I was doing classical ballets like Swan Lake, but getting new design. I brought in great Italian architects, designers like Andrea Bronzi. So it became so exciting. The audience doubled and all of a sudden it was very successful. Not all of a sudden, it took a couple of years but or a year. But suddenly all the dancers were on my side because they just saw that I was actually there for them. Right. I wasn't going to destroy their tradition. I was going to add to their tradition, but they were nervous. As I said, never had a woman director. And, they, and an American is even more nerve wracking because you know Americans tend to... Th- it's a country of so much power. And so Americans often 
don't know much about other cultures and they can be very much imposing their point of view and not listening to the local culture. But for me, it was the exact opposite. It was the most extraordinary learning experience because there I was living in the middle of the Renaissance because it's still so tangible in Florence. You walk down the streets of Machiavelli and Dante and and it's still the same houses where they lived. You actually can go visit all of their homes. So that was just my sense of history completely changed and how it comes down and that we are so much who we are because of our history. I mean, look what's going on in the U.S. today, if that isn't the proof of finally some reckoning going on with our slaveholding history. Culture is its history, and to deny it is just asking for trouble, and that's what America has done for so long. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm hopeful, but I... I'm sure it's not going to be solved. Obviously, there's too many people who don't want it to be solved. The thing that really transformed me is I started going to people's houses or inviting them to my house and learning to cook Tuscan cuisine. And <laughs> That's great. Yeah, exactly. Because everyone loves Italian food, right? Yeah. So, and then I realized this miraculous, extraordinary food only has four ingredients. I mean, it's always get down to the essentials. So this was, it's the exact opposite of the US, which is so multicultural and there's so many influences and all of those things that I did in the 80s that were very much about bringing a maximalist, like bringing in so many different influences coming at you from so many directions, all of which are very much part of our mental landscape. Well, then I went, my gosh, it's so interesting to eliminate, eliminate, eliminate. So I, wow. I just made a great change in my desire to eliminate. Mm-hmm. So I did enter this new phase that was really about the most undecorative kind of costume, the most beautiful lighting, the most beautiful elements, but I wanted them to be understating and understated and in a way to make the dance even more the primary carrier of the meaning, the experience for the audience. And that was really learned because of food. <laughs> that's, so, that's so interesting. <laughs> really great. <laughs> so you also ended up being the director in 2004 of the Venice Biennale, International Festival of Contemporary Dance. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. Now, Florence had 45 dancers. So, you know, it's a lot of people. And I want to say also that was my first really going to opera. And then I became very, very interested in opera. It was all because of, you know, being part of the Florence Opera Institution. The dance didn't do opera, but, but I, I could go see the operas. And then the government decided to close this company down, unfortunately. But, you know, dance is expensive. <laughs> Italy, Italy has money, but it's not a lot of hidden money. <laughs> People do not pay taxes. I mean, that is really true. So they were fairly desperate. They decided to close that company down. And I became the resident choreographer in Ballet de Lorraine in Nancy, France, in eastern France, in the Lorraine. And at the same time, became the director of the Venice Biennale Festival of International Dance. So that was an extraordinary experience because you're there where we all know the Venice art fair, art um, Mm -hmm. festival. What what am I saying? I'm saying the wrong words. I'm like thinking in Italian now. 
the dance takes place in the same, the exact same area, you know, those extraordinary old warehouses that serviced the boats, the arsenale, it's called. So it's, it's the mixture of the arsenale, which was, you know, also where the, I think, where battleships and the whole armory is, it's an armory, but much bigger than our armory. So we could create dance installations and performances throughout all of that. And it was a modest budget. The dance budget is nothing like the, the film or the art budget, but still enough that I could invite the most innovative, radical people working in, I would call it new ballet. I mean, reinventing the idea of what ballet is. So that was a, it was a thrill to live in Venice. It was a thrill to work with the staff who were so helpful they had so many great ideas, like, why don't we do a waltz on, you know, San Marco San and Marco. we'll have like 300 couples waltzing. I mean, they, they also were incredibly creative and interesting. That's very cool. So, yeah. So you were also interactive with the city, it sounds like. Yes, very much so. And, you know, lived in, had a great little apartment. And somehow all of this led to being invited to start directing opera. So then I spent a lot of time in Naples because Teatro di San Carlo, which arguably is the most important opera house in Italy because, you know, they commissioned so much like all of Rossini's operas. I mean, many of the foundational composers of Italian opera all worked there. And Naples is a wild place, as you know, I'm sure. Yeah. I was asked to direct Orpheus and Eurydice uh, the Italian version, of course. And so I had, oh, I, well, I had the three principal singers and then I had 70 dancers and I had a hundred chorus members, all of whom I made move <laughs> a lot. Wow. wow. So That's enormous. It, it was enormous. And Bryce Martin did the sets, which were just exquisite. Oh, that's so cool. Oh. And it has been such a hit. It's been revived three times since then. So I often am going back to Naples and it's, it is possibly my favorite place on the planet. I it is, love Naples. Yeah. It's so yeah. exciting because it has these contrasts as well and contradictions as you love, Yes, but it's, you yes. know, it's got this grittiness and, and danger a little bit too. Oh, and, yeah. and beauty, immense beauty by the sea via Po Silipo and it's just yeah. magic. You know, it's magic in so many ways mm -hmm. because it has the layers. The city is still infiltrated and made up of so many layers. It starts with the Egyptians who brought their gods. That was the kind of the first founding culture. So Pulcinella, actually, that is the Commedia dell'arte figure of Naples, actually comes from an Egyptian god that looks like a chicken. So, I mean, so, so you go back to the Egyptians and then you have the Greeks and then you have, of course, the Renaissance and you have the Romans, the Renaissance, then the medieval, and they're all there present, intermixed. So it is the most rich, tangible way of seeing how people have thought and felt and they have resisted Every influence, no matter how long they were conquered, they have maintained Neapolitan culture. They are who they are. It's just extraordinary. And I mean, they're, they're so resisted. vital, Neapolitans, it's and so, they have their own so dialect. Vital. 
Yeah. Yes. Every, I mean, it's just the most inspiring place. Yeah. So there is, and there talk is about no, freedom. That's oh, a culture yes. that is, it embraces is. It. Yeah. And it's because the Spanish were there for 400 years. You know, they did not change Neapolitan culture. American capitalism has not infiltrated Naples even one bit. All of their food, their music, the way they practice arts, their language, as you said, everything is still purely Neapolitan, including their traditions of, you know, transvestites are particularly special. So they're honored and beloved. I mean, it just, you know, it has all these, they're completely pre-Christian. The Catholic Church has not been able to make a dent in Naples. I mean, it's just amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is the rebel city, you know? Yeah, it was totally. <laughs> talk about yeah. irreverence and yeah. like a great fit. So you were gone for like 15 years from America and you were had this transformative experience and you were a part of this rebel city. And I just, I'm wondering what brought you back? What made you come back? I'm assuming it was for your new dance company, Armitage Gone. Yes. Yes, you're a- absolutely right. I love Europe, all of my experiences in the many opera houses and ballet companies that I worked with across 10 or 12 countries were inval- you know, invaluably enriching and gave me such uh, opportunities to explore dance. But they're all institutions. And you, know, you do hit certain levels of conformity within institutions, mainly on the part of the well, I would say on the part of the dancers fundamentally, but not only. Like you can't suddenly take an institutional ballet company into the street and do a kind of site-specific work because justifiably they're worried about the fact that the floor is not good. It can be dangerous for dancers. This is absolutely true. It's, it, it is dangerous, but I wanted the freedom to be able to do that kind of thing. And I wanted to work with dancers who were so deeply committed to dance that they would go to whatever lengths are necessary to be a dancer. And that is what a New York dancer is. And they're fluent in so many languages. They're fluent in ballet and in modern and in hip hop and in Chinese classical dance or whatever their, whatever their background is. New York dancers bring a kind of cultural richness with them Mm-hmm. that is unparalleled. I mean, there's just, it just doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And I just wanted, and I was also American. I'd been feeling like I should be addressing my culture and not only the Europeans. And somehow when you're a foreigner, you are always a little bit of a novelty and you right. can live as a novelty, which is kind of great because you sort of feel no political need to participate on that level. And I guess it's kind of a maturity. I felt like, you know, I need to make a difference in my culture. Right. Did this minimalism that you embraced in Italy, did this come with you back to New York? Yes. And I've, I've maintained very loyalty to that. I still can work with the same people. It's just sometimes I have to just say, no, not that much. It has to, I mean, not that many ideas. Let's just focus on, you know, let's, focus on one particular, you know, the one that just feels the most exciting. That's right. enough. We don't need more. <laughs> well, well, it, it's, it's almost as if you took it to almost like a particle level. And I'm thinking about the three mm-hmm. theories with the, mm. where you, you looked at Brian Greene's The Elegant Universe and you, I mean, essentially 
took this concept of physics and incorporated it in dance, which to me is sort of taking it to the most basic level. I'm just curious if that was part of a grander scheme or, or a new phase in your work. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, your connection with science and dance. What's interesting to me about science is the fact that that it really is where the new is taking place. I mean, it is the arena of such profound discovery. You know, looking at something like quantum mechanics and the absolute roiling, completely irrational, crazy environment of how at a molecular level, you know, the universe operates is, is incredibly interesting. So when I read Brian Greene's book, which are really is fundamentally the elegant universe, is about, you know, the most radical idea of what makes physics operate? How does the universe actually operate? Because we know that relativity, which Einstein, of course, invented in the early 20th century and discovered, revealed, that doesn't cover certain kinds of events and quantum mechanics doesn't cover certain events. So neither of these theories can really explain how the universe operates. So then this new string theory became a potential idea. It's not even a theory. It's a kind of hypothesis because there's no way to prove it yet. But what, what, what fascinated me about all of that was it made me think in new ways because they, these concepts about space and time are just so extreme. So it, it pushes you to think. And they also represent a kind of philosophical point of view, you know, relativity. Though there are tremendous forces operating the universe, it is fundamentally coherent. Then you get to quantum. It is so absolutely without rhyme or reason and aleatory. The universe is fundamentally totally unpredictable. And then string theory is a kind of reconciling between these two, kind of a, a balancing act, almost the forces between those two different perspectives on how to see the world. You know, is it predictable or is it unpredictable? <laughs> or does it in some way combine both? So I just thought it was a wonderful meditation on sort of how to look at how you see your life. Mm -hmm. um, so, and using these principles. So I would use a principle from each of the theories to generate the movement. So that, again, just an idea like that would push me to think about how to make movement in a new way. And that's always the goal, is to try to do something that just looks and feels different. And so I, I love science because it's very disciplined. It is people who have tremendous knowledge who are pushing conceptual ideas. And that always involves a lot, a lot of humanity. Right. And uh, yeah, you just said a little while ago, you wanted to bring back something to your own culture. And right now we've got a culture that's denying science. And I think it's, bringing it to the forefront is kind of a great thing through the arts as well. I mean, it's crucial. You know, and of course, now I'm accused of being what? Oh, if only you didn't use those scientific ideas and just let it be a dance, it would be fine. But it gets so pretentious because you're drawing upon science. So, you know, you can never win. <laughs> right. But I like that you're trying. Yeah, exactly. I like that you're, you're doing it anyway. And you grew up with a father who was a biologist and you grew up with science. And I know you've spent time in Kansas and Colorado and in nature and kind of goes back to your roots a little bit. It's my roots. And yeah, because I spent four months a year, every year in a biological research institution. So I, I was just 
exposed to the creativity of science from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is creative. And I don't think it's, everyone realizes that. Yeah. And fluid, but like dance. But in Colorado, you recently did a collaboration with Jacques Soto, and you recently came out of retirement as a dancer and set up a tripod in the snow. Can you tell us about this <laughs> and whether you're yeah. going to continue? Well, I, you know, I, when the pandemic hit, it, of course, it hit dance particularly hard because what we do is perform in theaters. <laughs> Every project I was involved in for the next two years was canceled. So that was March 10th, 2020. So for a very long time, I, I was really a zombie. I just, it was like my whole identity wiped out. So all these things that I'd spent months and months and months organizing were just annihilated. And, and you know, people were immediately starting streaming dances in, from their kitchen or whatever, from their apartment. And it was like, or kind of waltzing about the lawn. And it was all just terrible. It was it was embarrassing, absolutely embarrassing. And I thought, oh, I'm, the last thing I want to do is just do something for the sake of doing something. I've done so much. But finally, after just a very long time and watching every single film, almost every single film, in the New York Film Festival, I went, I got inspired. And I thought, well, maybe there really is a cinematic way to think about combining dance with visual art and performance and fashion and using cinematic techniques, maybe there really is a way to do something where the body is central, but it is a kind of visual art form for the screen. Because just capturing dance for the screen is just, it's just such a pathetic (laughs) replication of the live experience. I mean, it's not even, it's not even a replication. It's just, there's just no technology that works. Right. So I thought, okay, it has to be a visual art form. And I finally, really because of the New York Film Festival, I just was so inspired by so many of the movies that I, I said, okay, I'm going to make a movie. And it is going to feature dance. And so I thought, Jock Soto, he lives nearby. He's in New Mexico. He's left New York like, because he has returned to his roots. He's you know, half Navajo. He's gone back to New Mexico. And I'm in Colorado, and it's a short drive. And so I called him and said, what do you think? And I said, so I'm so scared. You know, I'm really retired. And, you know, I'm older now. And so it became about (laughs) kind of the fear of aging and what does a retired dancer do? And how do you look at the future once you've been a dancer? And he's become a great cook. So it became this movie that's sort of about domestic rituals and meditation through these rituals, and then dance scenes that we did in the most surreal landscapes of the America, well, the, of Colorado and, and New Mexico. So yes, I came out of retirement because I wanted him to have a partner. <laughs> and uh, I filmed myself literally in a snowstorm, like five or six feet deep snow, stuck the tripod into the snow and then it would like slant at some crazy angle that I didn't realize it was, you know, as I was shooting. Anyway, I ended up getting enough footage that I would often not even be in the shot, but it, it looks so fabulous. So because it 
kind of this, it was in aspen trees, which are white bark in the white yeah, landscape. Beautiful. And so it just looked, it just looked amazing. And so it's, it's so surreal. And then I, then Jock and I shot in White Sands National Park, which is just mountains of white sand that has an almost acidic yellow tint to it. I mean, a very yeah. unusual light. I, I've been there. It's incredible. It Talk about magic. It's, it's magic. Yeah. It's just magic. And, you know, the sun, the quality of the light. And then we filmed his solo at Georgia O'Keeffe's Plaza Blanca, which are those kind of crazy hoodoos that are all white. So this kind of theme of white is running through the, the landscapes. Though we also shot at one of these lava flows in southern New Mexico, which is, you know, a mixture of cactus and black lava. Wow. Which is also wow. incredibly beautiful. So it's like the imagination soars through art. And uh, so it's this, this kind of internal world, <laughs> but on two different facets. One is kind of the thinking meditative daily life. And one is the, you know, the art imagination soaring kind of life. It's so much so it's- better than people dancing on TikTok, which is what most people did during COVID. <laughs> That's right. That's absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in all of these cases, because I'm in it, I, you know, I, I bought an iPhone. I found out from an 18-year-old kid, a good film app. I bought a couple of tripods and I discovered what I call tatami shots because they make the body look so great because you're filming from very low, you know, from from ground level, Uh basically, and looking up at the body. So the body looks fantastic. And then you put it in a magical landscape, which is, you know, gigantic. So I don't know. It just just kind of worked. (laughs) Yeah. So what is now? What is what is next that you're doing? Well, because of this, I just discovered the idea of making short works for the screen where the body is central. We still don't know in New York if theaters are going to open. I mean, I guess they will. There's nothing open yet. Right. And, and no, you know, Broadway's supposed to open in the fall. We'll see. We'll see, uh, you know. Is dance going to come back as a live theatrical experience? I'm sure it will, but is it really going to be that soon? I don't know. So I got my dancers together. We went to a bubble so that we could revive some of the things we'd abandoned. All of them completely rethought in order to be something to be seen on a screen. So I added to my arsenal and got fisheye lenses and other things like this (laughs) and started started shooting dancers like from underneath so they look with a fisheye so they look completely bionic and very very strange wow so there's like this whole new perspective of looking at dance kind of as a cross between sculpture and though it still has movement cuz the using it oh yeah then i also have a gimbal so we're using the gimbal is moving and the dancers moving slowly Anyway, I'm making a series of short dances combining cinematic means from gimbals to fisheyes to green screen to sort of just rethink what dance-inspired work could look like as something that is truly a visual art form and not trying to replicate dance. That's very exciting, I think. I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm like so, I really am so excited by it. And so I've done all these green screens with a dance that's called Head to Heel. Mm -hmm. And it uses 
it, it was inspired by a book on medieval thinking because in this book is organized by body parts the you know the head the heart the eyes nose mouth etc genitals you know all the, just going down the body because in medieval times there was so much philosophy superstition and medicine philosophy i mean spiritual life connected to each body part and they're just so weird the way these the thinking was and this book just so inspired me to make a very weird strange duet with everything initiated body part by body part and we had kind of finished it but then i completely redid it with this idea of using green screens so that body parts you know the whole body could be painted green you would only see like the head bobbing around or other so isolations cool. it's a deconstructionist it's a it's a deconstructionist so that's one version then i have another version which is that i filmed the dancers in super close up with each of the, you know focusing on each of the body parts with a very subtle slow motion movement mm-hmm. so that that can actually be green screen like projected on the background and on the floor so they can dance on their own body parts while they're dancing so it's anyway I have an overwhelming amount of ideas and I will be soon be editing these because we just shot last week and sort of see which ideas really work mm-hmm. it's exciting and I think they can probably all work it's just that you know maybe for different contexts different ones are more appropriate right as things are coming back and, and the world is changing once again what would you like to see for the future of dance? I guess that's my question. Well, I am such a believer now in the possibility of creating things really thoughtfully for the screen. And I keep saying screen because, you know, it can be an iPhone or it can be a computer. It can be, it can be a movie, you know, a movie theater, like a huge screen. So it's like these different formats of the screen. And a little bit of that has been done. And, you know, I've, I saw one great thing. I've seen thousands of terrible things, but, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's going, you know, people are going to learn. And so I think that is marvelous because it's going to open up dance to people who've never been able to see it. I did just kind of live stream a piece, but it was still designed to work for the camera. Again, shot on the iPhone, on a tripod, and it worked really well. So I think there can be this kind of live dance streaming if it is thought of to be seen truly as a streaming event as opposed to just sort of capturing something on stage. Once right. again, I, I, I think dance is going to, for the first time ever, it maybe is going to be something that can reach a broad audience. I mean, we've just never had the means to do that. We've always been, you know, in theaters where at the most you have, you know, 1,500 people or 2,000 maybe. But, you know, that's always been the maximum audience size. So this is sort of a silver lining. It is. Oh, I think no question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Exciting. yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. And I think and it also means that there can be festivals that, you know, you invite people from all the corners of the world. You just suddenly have this hugely more flexible way of trying to create right. uh, artistic content. Well, it's, it's interesting. You've always tried to bring dance to the world and, and make it accessible. And it feels like the world is catching up to you, you know, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's, you know, because of COVID. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it, you know, I've had to be as creative in survival as anything else. Because, you know, again, 
being an avant-garde ballet choreographer, believe me, <laughs> in a field that has no money, <laughs> that has, you know, where there is nothing to sell. I mean, you have to be very creative to find ways to keep going. So it's, it's kind of like COVID has forced almost the, the whole performing arts world to, to, to rethink what they're doing. And I, you know, I, I, think, I think it's very, very positive. Yeah. It's great. So at the end of this, we do this thing called the quick draw. Okay. <laughs> okay. Six questions in 60 seconds. One word answers. First thing that comes to your mind. Okay. okay <laughs> no Alex, pressure. Okay. Take it away. <laughs> Who are you listening to right now? I am listening to, I can't pronounce his name, a Finnish DJ who does industrial kind of minimalist house music, electronic dance music. Wow. What are you reading right now? I am reading... Oh, uh, Ishiguro's Clara and the Sun. Fabulous. Who do you consider the most underrated artist? Oh, boy. And I'm supposed to answer this fast. There are so many African-American artists who have not gotten their due. I don't even know who to pick. But I would say there's literally probably a thousand African-American artists in many fields. Favorite song to dance to? Oh, I still have to go back to Wild Thing. Jimi Hendrix. Give me Jimmy. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Favorite fashion designer? Ooh, am I allowed to? I have to say two. Yes. Mark Jacobs and Miocha Prada. Favorite guilty pleasure? Oh, you know, I consider eating to be a guilty pleasure as a dancer, and I just love to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, That's Carol. It. Thank this you. Is so this is great. Thanks for listening to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Follow us on Instagram at Art Laws Pod. And subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Bye. Art Laws is produced by Alex Zappa and Robin Rosenfeld. Music is by Voidcore. And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles.